Happy New Year, friends. A thanks to all of our listeners for the past year of being there. I couldn't have done it without your ears. I know it's been a challenging year for everyone, and I do this show now because I believe that is the most important thing for us is to hear the right voices, our voices, and people who know the difference between fake news and real news. I try not to miss a week without giving you a brand new episode, but this week I thought it would be important to reshare my favorite episode of 2020. The episode is called A Chicago Shiro with Diane Ladker. And her story is one that gives me what I think we could call hope. I think we could all use hope in 2021. If you listen to it, that's cool. If you already heard it, share it then. Share it with someone who didn't. The organization is called Kids Off the Block. Their website is kobusa.org where you can donate. KOB does this. For the first time ever, hardworking parents can both educate their children, provide extracurricular activities that keep their kids off the street. And they will be able to do all of this for less than a cost of daycare alone. Through sponsorship, membership, endorsements, we will be fortunate enough to put 50 to 100 kids per session through a program that will enhance their life skills in many areas such as education, technology, music, film, sports, and more. That's right. KOB has revolutionized the way children learn and thrive in their communities. It's just a donation on their website. Go to kobusa.org. Kids off the block. And now I'm happy to re-air my favorite episode of 2020, A Chicago Shiro with Diane Ladker. Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have a new friend to the show. I have to say it's truly an honor to have my new friend, Diane Ladiker here. This is an episode that I really, I hold close to my heart. Being a native of Chicago, everything that she's done. She's a community activist in Chicago. Ladiker is the founder of nonprofit Kids Off the Block, which provides recreational activities and educational opportunities for young people in Chicago, focusing on the neighborhood of Roseland. She has made appearances on The Steve Harvey Show, The Kelly Clarkson Show. She received the CNN Heroes Award and was honored as a woman of worth from L'Oreal Paris, USA. This year, she was celebrated as a frontline hero from Variety Magazine, and was among a group of community leaders in Chicago to receive accolades from President Obama. Her book, Kids Off the Block, is an inspiring true story of one woman's quest to protect Chicago's most vulnerable youth, and it's now available on Amazon. Another great friend, Holly Harper, writer, comedian. She's the co-host of nationally trending Twitter storytelling chat, Blurred Dating. Her blog, Holly Harper Inc. on Medium has top writer status in parenting, Black Lives Matter, and racism. And she's the creator of the popular sketch comedy show, American Candy. Time Out Chicago named them one of the five groups to watch. Also, check out the show to hear more about her program, Stand Up Girls, a program that empowers young women by teaching them stand up comedy. Erica Watson is back. 
Yes. Actress, stand-up comedian. She currently hosts a dating podcast called Get In The Game and stars in the short film Black Korea. She has also appeared in the Oscar-nominated film Precious, as well as Chirac, Top 5, Side Effects, Dirty Laundry. As well, she guest-starred roles on Showtime's The Shy and Fox's Empire. She has been featured on The Dr. Phil Show, a recurring correspondent for ABC Windy City Live, which is one of my favorite shows in Chicago, WCIU's The Jam, which I've also been on. Hey! Hey, we're happy to announce that we are now a part of the Be Frank Network. You like that incredible new sound? You do? Well, to be frank, that's the Be Frank Network. I want to thank all of our listeners and friends like us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists, like Oprah Magazine writing us as a podcast that every woman should hear. We think everyone, of course. You can hear us on Google Podcasts now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review us on Apple Podcasts. That's important. Subscribe. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast and our Twitter is friendslikeus10. You can leave us a tip or a donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. And with Friends Like Us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. And man, the episodes keep getting better and better. So tell someone you know to check us out. Oh yeah, and wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask. I hope you voted. Oh, that's right. Black Lives Matter. Welcome to another Friends Like Us. Today's episode is probably, you know, I, I don't like to rate episodes, but I have to say this is one that's really close to my heart because I'm from Chicago and I have just an amazing woman that is just doing amazing things. Um, I, I just, I'm lost at words, but I also have two great friends here that I also love in the comedy scene as well as I've just known forever, Erica Watson and Holly Harper, everyone. Hey. Holly Harper. Hello. Yes. And I haven't seen you, Holly. I don't know. I can't get my words. Sorry. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't, I'm so nervous. It's, it's because I'm so excited oh. because, um, no, it, you know, Diane, I, I gotta say this, like, just listening to your story, like, like I, I've known about you, but like watching the videos and seeing everything yesterday, just, it, it, it got me really emotional. It got me super, super emotional because, you know, um, look, I grew up in Chicago. My grandma lived on 83rd and King drive. I think the house is still there, but I remember the last time leaving I thought this was probably going to be the last time I'm in this neighborhood or even close to like the neighborhood of the South side. I also had a babysitter when I was a kid named Granny. I don't know if you've heard of her. Uh, she was on Eberhardt off of 83rd street and she would take in kids from the neighborhood and, and babysit them. She was actually Muhammad Ali's nanny, Muslim woman, and we all called her Granny. She watched me, my sister. She was taking the kids. She just, that's what she did. And she, you know, so Diane, can you tell our listeners about, I'm going to let you tell our listeners what you do. So, um, what? first of all, I am super excited to be here, to meet all of you. This is so exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Really, to me, it's like, it's, 
what we're supposed to do. So it's not like it's a story to me. It's more of um, I had eight kids, uh, my husband and I, four boys and four girls, and I had one at home. Everybody else was gone. I thought I was going to be free. I thought I'd be able to go fishing and be a grandma, and that was it for me. And uh, But my last, Aisha was at home, 13 years old, and Aisha hung out with nine of her friends, boys and girls, 13 to 15, and I just started taking them places with me. Aisha wasn't too happy, but <laughs> I started taking them swimming and skating and fishing. And my mom said, Diane, those kids like and respect you. You should do something. And in the back of my head, I'm going, no, I'm going to be free. Aisha's going to high school, graduate, and go to college, and that's it. And I literally, Marina, prayed about it, though. And I'm like, what can I do? I don't have any degrees, no money, no what? What other people, kids? And um, I brought Aisha's friends into my living room that day, July 15, 2003, sat them down and asked them what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I thought I knew these kids because they were Aisha's friends, right? And I saw, I seen them, but I didn't know them. The gangs were, you know, recruiting the boys and they were all failing in school. And that's how it started. I said, Lord, at least I can do something with help with homework. And the next thing I know, these kids were knocking on my door that I didn't know. Somebody like, you the lady they say can help us. And I'm looking around my house going, who? Me? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I let them into my house. And in the span of almost three months, there were 75 kids in my apartment. Day and night. Wow. They were trying to get out of gangs. There were homeless kids sleeping on our floors. There were kids trying to go back to school. It, it was just... and. The crazy thing is I found my passion at 46 years old. That's great. Yeah. That's wow. wonderful. It's never too late. Ever. That's beautiful. And, 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 you know, I just see your relationship with the kids, too. The way you are with kids, it's just like they respond to you. Like, I have often thought about doing something like that. Like, I'm in New York. And I've often thought about doing something like that in Harlem, but I have a studio apartment. <laughs> so, I mean, what would be, okay, first I want to ask how many kids you went from 75 to how many do you have now? So last year we ha we helped over 300. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. It's, it, it's truly is amazing. Like, mm -hmm. cause you don't know cause you're in it. Right. So you're not counting. You, I don't look at the young people as counting them, you know, to see how many, you know, whatever. So, but I know from the people that's on my board and I work with, you know, my volunteers, this is how many, Miss Diane. But I don't look at them like that. I look at them like they come to a strange house in their community and in their city to ask for help. Can you, can you, I mean, young people come to you and they don't know anything about you, but they know they want help. And that's what's amazing to me. So having a lot of them coming and going and helping, I just look at them as, wow, my little small part um, sees them graduate for the first time out of their whole family to college. They go to college. And, well, uh, Erica is from Chicago. Have you, do you know of Diane? I know it's the off the block, kids off the block club, right? Yeah. Yes, because. One of my ex-boyfriends and his evil baby mama used to send their uh, daughter to the kids off the block club. And me being the girlfriend trying to be in his good graces would go and drop the daughter off and pick her up sometimes on from a, a West Side location. 
I don't know if you have different satellite locations around the city, but she was going to a kids off the block club on out west. And, no, actually, um, we don't. Oh, well, somebody's stealing your uh, the name of your organization. <laughs> well, it's not the first time. Yeah, I've heard about all over the country, mm. actually. Wow. But yes, no, I'm very familiar. I'm very familiar with you and what you're doing. I think it's awesome. Oh, it's a pleasure to meet you, Erica. Yeah. So tell us about the area where you are and where Kids Off, the, since we're talking about different locations, where is Kids Off the Block? And tell us about that neighborhood and, and why these kids need someone. So we're on the far south side of Chicago and Roseland. The, the young people out here our community, like 35 years ago, was a place to be, right? It had all the resources, and that was when Blacks started to move in. That's when I started to move here. Over time, white flight, crime popped up, and um, these kids had no nothing to do. I didn't realize that, though, because with my own kids, we always took them out, you know, places. But it, it was nothing here. So they were looking for somewhere on top of a safe place, right? Because they were afraid. Violence had picked up. I mean, it was it was getting out of control. So and they wanted a safe place in their community. And we started off helping young people 12 to uh, 18 years old. And then it just started to grow. It was like kids and young adults. And and uh, they were like, Miss Diane, I, I want to do this. And I, I can write. I can sing. I can dance. And I'm like, really? And so I had to turn a little small bedroom, like a closet bedroom, into this music studio. And I begged for used equipment and because all the kids wanted to rap and we all of us couldn't get in the room at the same time. And uh, by the way, my husband threatened to divorce me about three times, four times maybe. <laughs> uh, because I sold the property TV to get up some used computers to do homework. And then I, it was too many kids. And he's like, what you doing? But the funny thing, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't explain what I was doing. I was just doing it. And I was doing it, but feeling like this is what I want to do. So I quit my job. That was the second time. <laughs> he's still with me, by the way. Let me, let me okay. clear that up. Uh, <laughs> he ain't going nowhere. He ain't going nowhere. No, no, no. I, I wouldn't want him to. But I, I let me tell you, I was met with a lot of resistance helping these young people. Really? Oh, yeah. From the police department, from my alderman, from my ne- the neighbors were calling the police on me because it was kids in and out of my house day and night. You know, the gang leaders, I had to have arrested in front of my house. They were upset because the boys were getting out of the gangs. I got my van shot up. I was in between 245s in the gym room with 75 kids. I had 50 kids on the yellow school bus going to an event, got off the bus, Three guys with AK-47 were standing there waiting on us. I mean, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that we don't think about how people benefit from children not having, from them being in a bad place. Like, you have the gang leaders that benefit from kids being unsupervised and not having strong family structures so they get to be a part of the gang. The criminal justice system benefits from these children not going the right path. You have all these different people benefiting from their destruction. So when you come in in trying to offer stability, love, and all these things, you would think we'd all go for it. But no, there are systems that benefit 
from these kids not doing the right thing. So it's not just one system falling, but several. So of course they're going to come for Diane if she's trying to get them to be on the right path. Cause then that, that messes up the things for them. It's just really sad when you think about it. Thank you, Erica. Yeah, it is. I That's mean, it right there. That's it. So how did you get out of this? How did you get out of those situations? I, I, I'm still dealing with those situations. At first I was naive though, in the beginning, because I thought everybody wanted to help. Those are our children. They're everybody's children. So I thought everybody, I was just naive. But 17 years later, I'm still dealing with those issues. Uh, you know, I got new generations now coming up and um, I'm still dealing with the same thing. And I deal with it like I deal with everything else. I just keep going. I keep moving. I can't stop. I can't listen to the negativity. It's a perception. I was invited to Dubai, right, by uh, His Excellency. And, I, and I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, and come to find out he saw me on CNN and he wanted to know about the violence in my community. And everybody would be like, oh, that's so exciting. No, it wasn't. I didn't want to be a, a way across the sea for that. I traveled 15 hours and I was so excited to get there and learn that the reason I was sitting there with 80 laureates and 20 Nobel Peace Prize winners because of my community, because of the violence. Because of the violence, yes. That's not what I wanted to represent. Right. You know. When I watched the award show on CNN, because it's, you know, you were recognized as being a hero. And I think it's important that you are celebrated. I think it's it's good to take a moment and just recognize that what you do is good. Because sometimes we don't get to celebrate our heroes. So it's probably less for you, more for us. But, you know, Diane, I want to ask, can anyone do this job, do you think? Yes. Yes. That's one thing that I, I really believe in what Dr. King said we all can serve. But, but can I just touch right back quickly on that? If people want to honor people they feel good about as heroes or whatever they feel they are, do it by helping me to help others. I can put hang up a plaque on my wall and it looks cute and, you know. But if you support me, if you don't want to do it yourself, if you support me, I'm helping to do what makes us all feel good and what helps our world. That's what I'd rather. Give me one plaque in 20 years, but help me help hundreds of young people to live and thrive and be able to be young. That That's what I'd rather have. Do you still need help or what help have you received? Every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every day. I, for, for 17 years, I have seven volunteers, dedicated volunteers. We have never gotten a salary. Never. We do this out of our heart. Now, We've never had a grant writer, so we finally got a grant writer. And I'm trying to get a salary. Probably all my money be gone to what I'm doing. But still, <laughs> I still want to get me and my volunteer staff a salary. And I want to get money for programs. We need that. Not that we operate like that, because I would have quit a long time ago if it had anything to do with money. But yeah, we, need, we get uh, money from individuals who believe in what we do. I'm so grateful to them. Thank you all so much. That's how we stay open. We're actually getting ready to feed hundreds of young people and their families. Uh, we do it every year called Feed a Team. We feed teenagers and their families to bring the gangs together. We've had six gangs come together to bring their families under one tent. And the most we've had is over 800. And so 
we, we're getting ready to do it again, but now we're in COVID. So we had to do a COVID plan. So they're going to pull up and go, but they're still going to get their full Thanksgiving meal and they can come back as many times they want and eat. And we're going to just continue this tradition of doing things for them in our community because it's so important that they know that they're loved and cared for, even by people who don't know them. I was going to ask you about this time must be really difficult being that they're not in school school, like they're virtually learning. Is it more difficult and how has COVID affected the community? The kids that we serve, they were already struggling in the physical bit. So you can imagine, excuse me, I need to take a, look, my husband put the heat on in my back. So now my throat is scratchy. (laughs) (laughs) We're in the weird in-between season. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's snowing here. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Chicago. Yeah. So they were struggling in the physical building already. And we would, you know, we'd have to take kids to school because of gang lines. We'd have to, if they had a hole in their shoe, they didn't want to go. So we get together, muster up a couple of dollars, get some shoes, get coats, because they wearing two or three hoodies in the wintertime. So it was a myriad of issues. But now we got bigger issues because they're in their home environment. Some of them were getting away from their home environment because of the home environment so they could go to school. And, and they needed that social interaction. Yeah. And they don't have it now. Well, woo. This virtual learning has pulled the veil off. And I've even had debates with people about this. They're like, kids should have the cameras on. And I understand that. But some people live in a situation where they don't want people seeing what's going on in their homes. You know, you have moms being beat up domestic violence situations happening during class. You got naked folks walking behind the scenes, maybe a couple roaches on a wall. There's just all kinds of things going on. Um, And just to assume that everyone is living this, you know, in this nice home where it's just fine to turn a camera on. It's really, it lets us know how much we don't know how young people are suffering in this world. And just in Chicago, uh, was it last week or two weeks ago, a 70-year-old girl was sexually assaulted on camera during class. Um, her older cousin was having her perform oral sex on him. This is a 70-year-old girl. Um, and turns out it had been going on for a year or two. So in that way, in some ways, it was good that the teacher was able to see what happened so that they could report it. The young man has got arrested and has been charged. But these cameras are giving us an opportunity to look inside the homes of young people. And everybody, everybody ain't the Huxtables. Everybody ain't even good times. It's it's some it's some things going on. Um, And I I don't know. I just it, it just makes me so sad. So it's so good that we have people that are doing the work that she's doing because, I mean, a, a lot of these people, young people, they just need someone to know that somebody loves and cares about them. Yeah. 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 I have two kids home doing remote learning right now and it's hard. It, it is, it is like, I'm trying to shush people right now as we're doing this. Uh, but yeah, it's funny. My husband has some coworkers that live in Colorado and beginning of the school year or the end of last year, you know, when everything started, they sent letters home like, um, we can see you do your drugs in the background. We can see you in, in sexual things in the background. Wow. Like your kid is in school. And they had to send it out of state. Because, you know, one, smoking marijuana is legal in Colorado. But they were like, you know, do you have to? 
choke up with your kids right next to you. Like it's, re- it's really interesting. And you're, you're right. This remote learning is really illuminating to how Americans really live. So Diane, like, how are you able to, with the kids, are they able to come into the house? Like you can't have as many kids right together. Like how do you. Yeah. So what we did was back in March, my husband and I, cause we're older, right? I'm 63. So my husband is older than me. So we already scared, right? We in the house cause COVID didn't hit. And so we sitting in the house, we can't, the governor shut down everything. So we can't have the kids in the house cause we, we're a physical organization. We believe in getting the kids face, you know, showing them love, but discipline, all that. We couldn't do that. So we sitting in the house and we going, what in the world now? We decided we had a little raggedy van outside. We decided we were going to take that raggedy van, transform it, put some food in there, cook some food, and and put some uh, masks. We had about 100 masks, two bottles of sanitizer. We were going to take it around to the kids, find out what their families needed. And that's what we started doing. In a span of a week and a half, people found out about it, and we started delivering hundreds of meals around the whole, all of Chicago with thousands of masks and sanitizer and gloves and stuff. And so we did that all the way up until the end of June. We we just hit the whole city. We literally, we literally rolled the wheels off our van. <laughs> <laughs> we were doing over 300 miles a day all over the city. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it, it really, like, we gave away over 30,000 meals. We just pivoted because we had to. So we were sitting in the house just sitting here. So we said we're going to be scared out there driving, helping people. So we went to help the homeless. We went to shelters, churches. We went everywhere. And we helped the young people and their families that we served. And that's what we did. And we did that up into June. And then we did a COVID plan for our summer basketball league. Because every year we do a summer basketball league on a vacant lot across the street. And we had 380 students coming from all over Chicago. But we, we pivoted and made it where only two teams could come at a time, you know, so we wouldn't be overcrowded, masks and sanitizer. Everybody's been pivoting, been trying to fit in somewhere with this virus. Pivoting is the key. And it's it's interesting. Here you are doing this. You're not a, a government official. You're not an alderman. You're not a principal. You're not a mayor. And still you use the word pivot, which I don't see them using at all like they don't seem to know how to pivot you know it's like the solution to covid is about figuring it out like remember the woman who was at the hair salon saying she couldn't pay her employees and she just wanted to open up it's like pivot figure it out figure it out exactly yeah you know make sure you you think about it but you continue something (laughs) you know yes and, you know, I I could be being, I, I don't know, maybe I'm being unrealistic right now. You all tell me. But in my opinion, the people, especially that work in like education and stuff like that, I feel like there should have already been contingency plans already created for situations like this. We've had epidemics before, at least. They, the, we know the like people that study this kind of stuff have had the foresight to know they're going to be tragedies and things that happen from hurricanes to floods. Like, I just feel like there should have already been some type of thing in place. I mean, shoot, nuclear war. I don't know, but things in place so that if the world isn't going as it usually does, people could pivot. But 
maybe because Marina and Holly and I work in comedy where we're always pivoting in our career. Maybe our mindset is a little different. Like we, you have to come up with different things to do when the world around you changes. It can't just be, oh, I do stand up or, or I do sketch and I can't do anything else. No, you got to pivot in life when things change up on you. You know, it is what it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm on TikTok. I don't want to be on TikTok. Right. That's my pivot right now. I'm on like, my nieces are jealous of how many numbers. <laughs> I love, yeah. Every every Thursday I do TT Thursdays. And and, oh, wow. and now I, I do FaceTime with my nieces. Uh, one's in San Francisco and the other one's in Chicago. Or, or yeah, in um, the south suburbs of uh, Park Forest. So I'm always talking to both of them and um, the two girls in San Francisco. So I, I just like I like to try to there was a point when I realized how can I ha- I don't have kids, but how can I help my family members that have kids where this is difficult? Because you don't realize it at first and you then you're like, oh, my God, this this is really hard yeah. for for parents. Yeah. You know, at first I was making fun of them. I'm like, look at you having all those kids. But then I was like, oh, my God, I could help, actually. And I realized I, I was nervous about the fact that they're inside the home. So I was nervous about my the kids, you know, mental state. And so uh, I figure if we just every Thursday we set a time where we talk and we have that moment where they, you know, I'm not a parent, I'm not a teacher, I'm just TT and it's just fun. And now I tell them I have more TikTok followers than that. I so love it. I'm, I'm, the, <laughs> I'm a cool aunt. How are you doing that, Holly? Like, how are you? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm good. I mean, I'm lucky because, you know, I have a good support system. My husband and I have been married for over 20 years. And, you know, we have a 13-year-old and an, eight, and an eight-year-old. And we're, we're a pretty set group, you know. But we, you do need aunties. I'm, like, listening to you and this whole TT time. I'm, like, I am jealous. And it's because my sisters, we all have kids. You know what I mean? Well, one sister doesn't have kids, but she's always busy. And it's like, when you have kids, it's like, you want to help each other out, but you're like, I got my kids over here too. You know what I mean? So what I do see happening is that now it's going on so long that I see a lot of kids have just kind of given up that the world will change back. Like if you're only 10 or 11, 12 years old, you don't have enough time, 20 years, 30, 40, 50 years time to know that things will change. And so I do see a lot of apathy among, especially like young teenagers. They're just kind of like, you know, a lot of young teenagers, you got to remember, they they grew up with Obama. They grew up with Obama. Like my daughter was born into Obama. You know, she had, she had an Obama baby t-shirt. That was like her favorite thing. The American flag was Obama's flag, you know? And so to see, to go from Obama to this person, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's yes, it's really hard. Like I'll never forget when he was during the 2016 election, my daughter was like, mama, I don't know if I'm ready for a white president. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know what I mean? Because this black excellence is all she knows. Right. That's all she, so a lot of kids, the past four years with Trump and now the pandemic, they're like, life sucks. This sucks. We, we were told it was good and it's not, it sucks. Yeah, well, it's just that's why Diane's story is so um, inspiring during this time because, oh yes, you know, it's just like, you know, just a little nugget of an idea can explode into such a wonderful thing. It's like, like you're like you're saying, like TT Thursdays, maybe I'll have to in- include your daughter 
uh, Holly and TT Thursdays. <laughs> I think you might have to do that because they have said that I need to do a Zoom, but I just think it's it's a good place for them where they're not like school and 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 you know, and I feel like I'm reach I'm approaching fifty, <laughs> and so I, I know I'm no longer cool, but the kids. I love when they tell me, like, they laughed at my sneakers because I had some New Balance sneakers that were kind of dirty. They were like, just don't wear those out. <laughs> <laughs> so, Diane, I do want to say, like, when I saw you receiving that award and, you know, it was Ice Cube that handed you the award. I know that must be a little eye opening moment for you right now. <laughs> when I saw him come on the stage, I knew he was for me because he came from that background. Yes. They didn't tell us who was going to be presenting us. So oh. I saw him walk on that stage. Oh, wow. oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's he's for me. Take us to that moment. What was that like receiving that award at oh, my CNN God. Heroes? When they called me, they called me like a month before and they said, um, can you go in a closed room, go somewhere and close the door? And I'm thinking, like, oh God, what did I do? Because I'm not thinking about it. <laughs> I'm not thinking. So I go in this little office space and I close the door. And they're like, um, you're one of our top 10 CNN heroes. And I look around this little room and I, because you know I'm looking for somebody else. <laughs> so I went into euphoria, literally. You know, I knew, I watched CNN. I mean, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a junkie, I'm a news junkie. And so I'm watching, I'm watching and you, you're telling me that I'm going to be, a, you know. And it was amazing going when I got there, um, we celebrated three days. They brought us in three days early. And I was with all the other top 10 honorees. And I wanted them to win. <laughs> they were doing such amazing things. And I was just, I was just, flo- I, I, let me tell you, I got to tell you this. At the award ceremony, Shaka Khan walked in. Anybody that knows me knows that Shaka Khan is everything to me. Yes. I saw this lady walk wow. in. I tell you, in the middle of, I got up out of my seat and ran and got on my knees in front of her. I said, please, can you just take one picture with me? She's like, lady, get up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh. no, I was so blown away. It was so awesome. I cried the whole time. She should have been doing that to you, though, because it's just such a uh, it's well deserved. And seeing you receive that award and seeing the audience understand it, I think that's also what was really great looking at that, you know, looking back at that, seeing this. It was mostly a white, I think, celebrity audience. And I think, you know, it takes them out of that to like something real. And what you said to the audience about don't give up on our children, please don't give up. Cause I think many have, especially in Chicago, when they talk about it elsewhere, like even in New York, they're like, Ooh, Chicago is really bad. Isn't it? Everywhere. If you were to put a face on a story, what is there a story of one of the kids that you could share with us? There are many, but I always share this story about Maurice. He's actually on one of the videos with me too, but Maurice was 13. Maurice knocked on my door and said, uh, is you, are you Miss Diane? And I said, yes. He said, oh, you the lady they say can help me. Again, I looked around and, and I said, okay, Maurice, what do you need? He said, I want to change my life. And I looked him in the eyes and I said, you have no life. You're only 13. And he said, 
No, Miss Diane, I've been robbing people and beating up people and stealing. And so I pulled him into my house and I sat down with him and he was struggling in school. And I found out that he and his mom had been sleeping on concrete because his mom had been on drugs. And it was just a whole story. It was it was terrible. And Maurice was angry. But guess what? I, he wanted one thing out of life. He wanted to play football. He wanted to play football. When I, when the layers came up and it started opening up, Maurice wanted to. So that's why he was mean to everybody and he was creating all this chaos at 13 years old. And we got him on the football team in, in our elementary school. And all the teachers, was, was they didn't like Maurice. And when he, they let him on the football team, he started and he was on cloud nine. He started mentoring the third graders. The teachers started liking him. His grades went up. And this young boy became a mentor right before my eyes. All because I let him into my house. And you listened to him. And I, you know, it's just like you heard, what did he want? Does anyone ask them what they want? Right. That's that's what we, we can't tell them what they need. They have to tell us. And you saw him. You saw him. Yeah. You saw him. Yeah. Yeah. And he was brave to come to my house. <laughs> he didn't know me. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing because that's it's like you wouldn't think you would think kids would just want to do their own thing. Like because I'm seeing this in New York right now. It makes me very sad because there's no schools. There's nowhere for them to go. after. I remember when they started cutting back on the after school programs in New York. And I used to do that. I used to do after school theater, after school reading. I would go into the schools and read books and make it fun, you know. And high school was hard, though. <laughs> and I, I went to this one school and the woman said to me, she goes, girl, I said, is this special? And she goes, girl, this whole school is special. OK, mm. but I went in there and I remember like all they needed was something different from what they were regularly getting, something that was entertainment. And I could tell the teachers were tired and but they needed that after school program somewhere to go. And now when they started cutting back on after school, I I knew right away, I said, this is not good. And then now I see the kids on the streets hanging out. And, you know, I live in Harlem. It's been a lot with the kids in the neighborhood. It's, it's, you know, everyone keeps saying, oh, it's back to the eighties. I'm like, but what are we going to do about it? I mean, it's really simple. It's like the, we cannot like, you know, right now we have the school system in New York arguing over, going back to school, right, Holly? Um, yeah. You can elect in. Yeah, you can you can opt in to do blended learning, but there is no mass testing. That's a gamble. That's a serious gamble. So, yeah, we need we need a Diane in New York. <laughs> we do. Because it's funny, um, you know, when I was reading about what you do, Diane, I was like, wow, you know, all these years my daughter was growing up, you know, now she's 13. People were always talking about the, th- the, the hours between 3 and 6 p.m., between 3 and 6 p.m. That's when all the bad stuff happens. You know what I mean? That's where good stuff can happen, but that's where bad stuff can happen. And so it's been so much about that. And now she's 13 and it's just COVID. So it's just like, like everything just kind of, so it's like that's dash, but then all their development, that that's that social interaction is extremely important, it's extremely important. I mean, they're tired of looking at our faces. They're tired of looking at me. They don't want to see me. Like they want to see me come home and get dinner, but they don't want to see me 
at four in the afternoon, you know, looking at them like, hey, I don't that. <laughs> well, I, I also say this because like, I'm looking at some of the old stories in Chicago. I did put this old story because of that after school incident that happened with the young lady, Lynette Holloway. Diane, do you remember that story about Lynette Holloway? Just as Chicago, this was in 2014, but just as Chicago lawmakers were beginning to breathe a small sigh of relief at the city's dwindling crime rate, a 14-year-old Southside girl was shot and killed by classmates in a rivalry over a boy. And police arrested another 14-year-old girl and charged her with first-degree murder in the stunning execution-style shooting death of a 14-year-old India Martin in the city's back of the yard's community and India was fatally shot in the back at about 4:30 p.m. Monday after returning home from Tilden Career Academy and the shooting apparently sparked by a Facebook feud proved embarrassing for the embattled city which had been dubbed Chirac because its murder rate at one time called to mind the death toll among US soldiers in Iraq so i i put this story in because we cannot forget this young girl and we cannot forget this story. And, you know, moving forward now, where were you like? <sighs> so I was more upset that the uncle gave her the gun because an adult, an adult mm-hmm. gave a kid a gun to kill another kid. She's sad. I was highly upset by that. I, that story played out for a whole week because Facebook was a part of it. It, it was Facebook then among young people, they've left Facebook now, but back then they were there and it was everything. And so to see that, that you can actually die for being on Facebook to children, <laughs> to children, I was just blown away. I really was. It was used like a weapon. Diane, do you see that a lot of the beefing and issues that are going on nowadays are being sparked because of social media as a whole, you know, it's like back in the day, you attributed gun violence to gang violence or drug activity. But nowadays, social media has it so that, okay, she put up a post about me and I didn't like it or she did this with my man and now people are killing each other over social media posts. This is really sad. Actually, it's still the same underlining issues. It just went to social media. Okay. It's still the same underlining issue. Somebody looked at somebody the wrong way. Gangs are all over social media. Mm-hmm. All over. Oh. oh, yeah. They are? Oh, yes. Oh, wow. yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. And so it's still there. Everything is still there. It's just now. What This is a right now. These are right now generations. Everything is right now. And so um, that's how the kids use it. They go from one platform to another. What they do is if they go to a platform and it's theirs and then the adults come, they find another platform. Right. Like TikTok, they're, they're start, we're on TikTok now. I'm seeing like, because the old people are on there streaming, <laughs> they're talking about, you ain't got to look, you can look good at 50, girl. <laughs> they're like, it's time to leave TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in a way we're saving them from like all of that social media angst though. I feel like TikTok, at least they're dancing. I don't know. It seems a little bit, Happier, happy. TikTok just seemed happier to me. Well, that's the part we're looking at. Every pro has a con. There's another part of TikTok that we're not looking because we don't watch it. We don't look at that. Just like I found out about Snapchat. There's another. There's an undercover dark world in Snapchat. Ugh. 
But they, they open up to you about that, right? They tell you. But that's because they can talk to me in, about anything. There is no judgment. They can talk freely. I am not one to judge. I am a very flawed person. <laughs> I know no perfect people. Truly, I don't want to know any either because there's something right. But those young people can sit and tell me anything. And all I want to do is help them, though, to make whatever it is that's bothering them better. That's all I want to do. Yeah, you, you have such a the, the personality that you have is just so it's wonderful around to have, especially in this time with um, I guess cancel culture could be tough on the kids, too. I never thought about it, but I'm guessing that it, it can have its effect on them as well. As far as like you're saying, you just you don't judge. You just want to listen. Who are we to judge? Yeah. If somebody opened up my closet, they'll get smothered by the skeletons and everything. I, I don't. Who am I to tell a 15 year old that came in to? Because we got a, we got an issue with young girls being driven in the slave, you know, trafficking. And so, if that 15 year old girl comes to me, who am I to say, pull them them shorts off, put this on? You shouldn't take that off your. I wouldn't dare do that. She trusts me enough to come talk to me about what's going on. And I might be able to help her, but I'm going to run her away because of putting my judgments on her. No, I don't want to do that. No. And it's crazy because I remember, you know, I, I was never trafficked, but I remember being really young and not wanting to tell my mother or other adult women some things because I was so in fear of judgment, you know? And I realized so much of it now is just internalized patriarchal thinking that's masked as keeping you safe when it's really not keeping you safe because you're not able to open up and tell people when there's something going on, like there's real red flags. But, you know, I never forget when I met Rachel Lloyd years ago who works for uh, Chief Founded Gems, Girls Educational Mentoring Services. They get teenage girls out of trafficking you know, out of sex trafficking. She started in the UK and then she came to New York. And as she came, she started in the UK as a prostitute had to get on a plane to escape her pimp. That's the only way she could escape him. And she got here and then she saw here in Brooklyn, she's like, wow, the same exact thing, you know? So I spoke with her a lot a, a while ago. I'll never forget, she was the one who was telling me about 3 to 6 p.m. and telling me about, don't be, don't think that your kid is safe because they're hanging out at Starbucks. That's where these predators hang out. That what not that dollar pizza, the Starbucks, any kind of any kind of smoothie, anything. That's where they know that girls are. You know, they and they do the whole thing where they pose as they're four or five years younger when they're really 22 years old. And they pose like they're 16. And they just push the boundary a little further, a little further until it's, hey, you want to hang out with me at my house? And then, you know, yeah, that three to six PM. And the, the no judgments, because you need girls to be able to tell you, hey, I met this guy. You know, they don't even want to tell you if they feel like you're going to say something crazy. They're not even going to tell you what, what even happened. I do want to ask you about right before COVID started, did it improve? Like, was the area, you know, I'm sure like there's some things, you know, since COVID's made it more difficult, but I'm thinking that from this story, like 2014 to like 2020, what what has changed? For me? Yeah. So a lot has changed in my immediate area. I, I heard from the police commander that there's a respect level that is now around my block from young people. They don't want to come here and shoot because we were dealing with shootings every day. And uh, they don't want, in a four block radius, they, they try to keep the, the gangs. They try to keep the, the violence down. That's all good, but you got 
young kids now coming up, 13, 12, now they got guns. So they don't grew up in this generational thing where everybody in their family was in gang involved or drug involved. And so now they're coming up and they could care less what I'm doing and what I'm saying. So that's my new battle. And my old battle is giving kids hope who think there isn't any. <laughs> that's always been my number one battle, to give the people that come to me hope because they just don't believe in it. It's just, it's so, it's it's just this, not the South side I remember either. You know, it, that's what breaks my heart is like, Erica, you could speak to this too, right? Like 83rd King Drive is close to that. To, yeah. Yeah, it's right there. That's Chatham. Chatham. Right. And is Chatham about the same as far as like gun violence right now? Or because I don't, I don't know. I haven't been. There is um, like now I live in um, Auburn Gresham. I grew up in Hyde Park area, but I live in Auburn Gresham now. So in some ways it was culture shock for me because I'm used to Hyde Park, middle class, upper middle class folks, well-educated and multicultural. And then now I'm in Auburn Gresham where it's a, a different feeling. What's in the grocery store is different. You know, I like my bagel and lox and I I, I need, there are certain things I need, my matcha tea. You ain't getting that over all 87. <laughs> uh, but there's a Starbucks now, you can get it. But they're just, they're, they're differences. And I always say people want the children to change or the situations to change, but it has to be an upheaval of entire communities and deep-rooted generational things have to change. And people are very critical of these young people, but they're not thinking about the environment these young people are living in and that this is the second, third or fourth generation of people in their family that are living in that. So if you're around people that went to college and their parents got degrees and then you're even grand, like in Hyde Park, a majority of my friends, even their grandparents have bachelor's degrees. But then I go in another area where you'd be lucky if somebody has maybe gone to junior college at all. So what you're around is what you're going to think is normal. So if we want to change the trajectory of these young people, we have to get in and really massage these communities and make some changes as well and really be honest about what's going on. And once again, that's why I say this, this virtual learning has pulled the veil off. Like people are seeing what, getting a little bit of a glimpse of what's really going on in people's homes. But Growing up in Chicago, I don't know when this whole narrative of the South Side was this dangerous, crazy place, because all, all the Jack and Jill, a.k.a. so-and-sos, all, that's, that was South Side of Chicago. I mean, you had Peel Hill, where all the Black doctors lived. Like she said, the Rosen community, you have all these even working class families in Chicago on the South side, your parent might, you know, your dad might work at the post office. Your mom may do administrative work. You were expected to go to college and do well. This whole idea of the South side being dangerous and crazy. I don't know when that, when that started, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I felt like it started when they tore down Cabrini Green. Yeah. Most, a lot of the projects, people don't want to get real and have those kind of conversations. You tear the projects down. So then you take people that have lived in that situation and do mixed income, right? And mix them with different people that are homeowners. And then you wonder why there's a difference in the way a community is operating now. And I don't mean to generalize 
because even the projects in Chicago at one certain time, it was still two parent households. You know, you lived in certain buildings. There, it wasn't, I don't know. I don't know when all this supposedly crime just became synonymous with being a Chicagoan and a Southsider. It's very, it's very sad that that's now, like when I'm in Brooklyn, people are, oh, you from Chicago. But it's also about the the messaging that's in the media because Chicago was not the most dangerous city. I think we're ranked like number four or five, but the narrative that's being pushed is that, you know, I think it's an anti-Obama rhetoric as well, that Chicago is just full of people that are killing and gangsters. But per capita, I think even Little Rock, Arkansas has more murders in other places that are, I, I believe Chicago's like number five on or six on the list when it comes to murder per capita. It's really interesting you say this because I, you guys are all Chicago, but I went to school in Chicago. That's my only experience. I went to four years at DePaul University and, and this was in the early 90s. And I don't remember the South Side is, people didn't talk about the South Side as being this scary thing. Mm-mm in the early 90s. They didn't. And it's now, but, but since Obama, I, they're always like, what is Obama doing about Chicago? You know, and it's like, Obama, Chicago, Chicago's bad because of Obama, and Obama's bad because Chicago's bad. And it's just like, Newark, I, you know, I'm from South Jersey, and like, Newark has had the reputation for years. I always felt safe in Chicago, Newark. Like, I'm Yeah, sorry. I think the comedian, uh, Vic Henley, once said he's, since passed he passed during this time but um he said the only safe thing in newark is a bullet (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) it was very dark joke but diane i do i want to go back with your um connection to the police actually with this because this is an interesting time since george floyd and how are the kids responding to that are they has it changed them in any way or, you know, or is it like, you know, they're still just kids and they're like, ah, who's George? You know, kids will be kids. And then you also have to you do work with the police to to make this program work. Right. So has those attitudes changed? I mean, like I had my friend Ana Isis Figueroa on. She's like, you know, we got to remember that police are humans, too, and that some of those police officers are black friends and family members. And we got to figure it out. We got to pivot and figure it out. So what's what's happening, Diane? So one thing is these kids have always they grew up with police brutality. So this is nothing new. I've been battling the police ever since I started because the way they would treat kids, not all. So what I did was I partnered with the police department to do a program in my house where I invited young black boys, police officers, white, black, Hispanic, to sit in my living room and talk over things and get to know each other. And it was beautiful. Not always. It got it was tense at first. Oh, it was. <laughs> I, mean, I can imagine. The boys wanted nothing to do with them. They wouldn't <laughs> come. So what they did was they got some food and fed one or two up, and then they told the other boys, and then they came. <laughs> oh, okay, food is good. Yeah, and then but but then I looked up and there were thirty two boys coming age twelve to eighteen every week in my house with these police fifteen police officers. What happened was they the police officers got to see the boys not because every time the police comes, it's in trauma situations, right? They got to know them aside from that. So when they would drive down the street now, they go, hey, and they go, hey, officer. You know, so that that changed that. Now, 
if you got generations of, of blacks who talk about how police brutality has affected their families, and, and this is year after year and generation after generation, of course you got kids growing up saying police are bad because some of them are. But we've got to try to figure out a way. To me, this is my personal opinion. I do this stay as close as I can to the police officers because I want those kids to live. And the only way they're going to live is if it's a relationship. So when that officer pulls that 20-year-old over, oh, no, that's that's Joe from on so-and-so block. Or that's, that's so-and-so's brother. They can live. There is no fear. There is no made-up story about why they killed them. Right. Common sense here. Common sense. You're right. Yeah. So the kids, the kids know me, though. The young people, uh, Miss Diane will call the police on you if you act up. Oh, oh yes, I will. <laughs> they're not calling you a Karen are they calling you a Karen yet you can call me what they, and I tell them you can call me what you want to they're not going to call me stupid and let you well, uh, risk the lives of kids who want to change right exactly I had to literally call the FBI one day because the, 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 the gang took over the building across the street from my house and threatened the boys that were coming to my program they're on top of the roof with guns. Oh, boy. Oh, wow. And, and one boy was trying to come to my program and call me. He was on the corner. Miss Diane, they won't let me pass. And I got up and went out. Sometimes I know I do crazy stuff. I am, <laughs> yeah, I am crazy. I went to the corner and I got him. And one of the boys in the gang said, Miss Diane, I'm not going to always be there to protect you. And something blew in my head. I promise you. I got on my cell phone and I called the FBI. And I said, either you're going to get rid of this building or I am. They cannot stay in there and threaten these boys who want to change their lives. Now, mind you, I had helped some of those boys who were threatening those boys. Wow. Yeah. So they you knew, knew You knew them by name? And they, oh, yeah. I wow. knew their name. I knew their families and everything. See, the gang is a family to them. It's a negative family, but it's a family. This is the story the the um, Illinois police officer fired after fatally shooting black man on October 20th. An Illinois police officer shot and killed Marcellus Stinnett, a 19 year old black man who was sitting in a car that was reversing toward the officer. A woman who was also in the car was also shot and seriously injured. In response, the police officer who has not been identified was fired three days after the shooting. As of yet, the police have still not said why the vehicle was being investigated. The police said the car went into reverse toward the officer, but did not describe how far the officer was from the car, how fast it was moving, or in any other details of the shooting. And this has sparked outrage and new protests demanding justice in Waukegan, Illinois. The case is currently being investi investigated by the Illinois State Police with assistance from the Department of Justice. So when I saw this story, I thought to myself, like, you probably can't really get in your definite long winded question out. My questions are so long winded <laughs> when I'm like, just not sure if there, if, if it ever seems like I go too long, it's just cause I'm like, get the question out, Marina, get the question out. You have a I'm soothing not, voice though. Your voice is soothing. Yes, you do. I know my voice is soothing, but it's just the voice. It's not my brain. <laughs> my brain is not soothing at all. <laughs> okay. It's not really, but I'm, I'm just wondering if, 
Diane, if you agree with defunding the police or do you feel like it needs to be broken down a lot more? I'm torn because I think we need all of us. I think we need the police. I think we need community people. I think we need schools. We need churches. I think we need everybody. So I, I'm and, and, and I've thought about this a lot because I know a lot of young people's like defund the police. And, and then what? Because you can fund me, you can take the money from them and fund me and people like me. Well, that's what they want to do. That's what defund the police means. They do. They do. Oh, I've read it. They do. I know they do. But that's not what I do. People think defund means totally wiping out policing and taking all the money away. No, I'm just saying some people do think that. And no, defund means where we need the therapists and the counselors and the crisis workers and the people that can come in a situation where people are mentally ill and defuse it versus killing somebody, take some of those particular resources away um, and put the money where it needs to go so that police can do the job they are qualified and should be doing. Yes. Yeah, our police department gets $100 million in overtime. You know that they need... Mm. That money needs to go some some money needs to go to of course other places. But my issue is this. If they if they take money from the police department, say they take 40 million from the police department, and they say we're gonna give it to community organizations, we're gonna give it to healthcare officials, mental health care. Okay, are they really gonna do that? There's a bureaucracy here in Chicago. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. No, you're right about that. I'm saying that nicely. That work. Yes, that's right. You're absolutely right. Well, they're going to have to do something, though. I mean, a friend of mine who herself has suffered from mental illness is now going out and speaking, um, doing seminars to the Chicago Police Department in particular, where she talks to them about mental illness, triggers, and the way to diffuse situations. So there are some people that are realizing, first of all, People have to have an understanding of what policing historically has meant in the United States, why it was created. It's a direct descendant of fugitive slave laws, uh, the black codes. So when you have a system, the whole reason why police exist in the U.S. is for the capturing of people of African descent. That's why there were police systems created. So the overseer became the, the person that's out on the street. They became B-cops. Yeah, they became B-cops. Right, they became B-cops. The whole system of policing has to be changed from the top down and from the inside out. It has to be a full-on restructuring of what it means to be a police officer. And part of that needs to be defunding and reallocating funds to go to the right way so things can be done. But like Diane said, will it happen? But I think that if we want it to happen, we have to be positive about it, speak it into existence and be a part of making sure things are going to change. Some people are just screaming out defund, but then they have no action plan. Yeah, the policing systems in the U.S. are going to they are going to have to change if we or we're going to keep seeing the same things happening over and over again. I mean, even when we were little, we had officer friendly. He would come in and laugh and joke with you and make a number five and then turn a number five into Fred Flintstone's head and draw all these pictures. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't grow up having a general fear of police. Once again, I grew up in Hyde Park, but there was the understanding that if you are pulled over, do this, that, or whatever. Now my brother, who is a Southside Chicago boy who has grown up, he looks like Suge Knight, even though he's a 
teddy bear. He is a Chicago police officer. And he himself is like he interacts with young black men in a different way than probably some of his cohorts that are white and from the suburbs and have never interacted with other black men. So I do think also having more people look like the communities they're serving will also help. Just my little two cents. But yeah, defund the police. De- not unfund, defund. Defund and build back up. Defund back and up. then yes. ref- be defund and reform and rebuild. Yes, absolutely, Holly. That's that's perfectly said. Listen, I've called the police on the police. Yeah. That's that right. Because they, they, they sent racist cops into my community. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yep. And they made young people strip in the cold. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching this. And so I just called the police on them and, you know, expressed to them. But what I want is so naive. I just want everybody to help. That's not naive. That's that, that's not naive. That's very honest. To be in a place where nobody is so vulnerable that they can't get help or they're so hopeless, they have so much hopelessness that right. no no entity can help them. Because why? Because we've got this set over here and this set over here. What is the problem? What is important? You know, Diane, you know, the memorial that you set up is so important visually because it reminds us. Can you tell Holly and Erica about the memorial, the visual memorial you've set up? In May of 2009, a young, a 16-year-old honor roll student, well, you from Chicago, Blair Hope. You know about Blair Hope. He got killed on the CTA bus coming home from school, trying to protect uh, one of his classmates. And by a 14-year-old who got on the bus and sprayed the bus. My daughter, Aisha, she went to school with Blair, and I knew Blair's father. And when that happened, I was so angry because people were calling me, let's march, let's rally. no. I don't want to do that. Young people are not hearing that. And so I was at Home Depot and I saw these headstones about like that. Well, they were little stones. They looked like small headstones. And I only had enough money to buy 30. And I put Blair's up there first with his name and the date he was killed. And here we are. (laughs) It's almost 800 stones in that memorial right now. We're almost 600 behind. We can never keep up. Wow. We've rebuilt it 15 times. And I'm outraged that there is no outrage because they are black and brown kids. It's 24 years and down. The youngest is a one-year-old who was getting her diaper changed. They were trying to kill her father. So, It's so emotional for me. It's because I think, God, I'm getting emotional over this. But when you, the, the fact that you put that up visually, and the fact that it had that impact is so important because sometimes we just want to go and march, like you were saying, or we just want to. But I think this has such when I, I saw the video of it and I see the, the artist. What's his name? Surf. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it it affects me in a way that's very different than just hearing the story. When you see the it's like going to the, the Holocaust Museum or to go to the museum, the African-American Museum in D.C. If you don't see it, you won't actually believe it. I think it's part of why coronavirus is, act. you know, people are acting. If you don't see it, you hear the news every day. We see what's happening. We, we heard the news in Chicago all the time and it just People just kept moving around Chicago like, oh, well, that's that area. They forgot, but that's why that memorial exists. So they won't be forgotten. I've seen gang members come and stand in that memorial because all of their friends are in there. They changed their lives literally right there. I live across the street from the memorial. So when the families come, I 
I've heard mothers screaming and crying over those stones. Oh, it's hard. It's like when you look at the, from the bird's eye view of a lot of the stuff that's happening, in particular in the Black community in America and, and elsewhere, just through the diaspora period, in some ways it's sad, but it you can, I don't want to say it makes sense because saying something makes sense gives the illusion that alludes to it being right. But what I'm saying is it, it kind of, it, it seems that the system is working yeah. the way it's been set up. The way it's been set up. We came here being considered three-fifths of a person. Our lives, since our history in this country, we have never measured up and been worth what a white life is. So then it's understandable how Black lives can continue to be damaged and killed. And people, it's just another story like, oh, another one shot, another one gone, and another one's gone because of this feeling of us not being worth anything. Our lives are not worth anything. And it's really sad. I do think in many ways, this young generation, though, you also have the leaders that are not taking it anymore. The young people that are marching and making loud noises and are saying, we do love ourselves. We do deserve to live. I think things are changing, but it is, it's so sad. Like, Black people have been through some shit, y'all. Like, it, you know what I mean? Like, we have been through it. Yes. Yeah, and the fact that we're still living and we're resilient is beautiful. But yeah, it, it makes sense why some of this destruction and killing and stuff is happening because it's like our communities are just so, we're broken and we're, we're hurting and... It's just sad, but we gotta we gotta keep pushing forward. Like D- Diane was saying, everybody has to do their part. So even if we break it down house by house, block by block, if you have something you believe in and do your part, and I do my part, don't worry about what I'm doing and what you're doing. Everybody do their part, and then eventually change will start happening. I think people get too caught up in, well, y'all focused on that. What about this police brutality? What about I wish Black Lives Matter to Black people? Yeah. When people say that to me. I want to slap them. I do too. But, I get very okay, annoyed. If, yeah. But if, because they're not mutually exclusive, if police brutality is that person's issue, let them deal with it. If I'm dealing with inner community violence, let me deal with it. Somebody else is dealing with girls' abductions, let them deal with it. Like everybody deal with their thing. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be okay. Diane, are you still there? I think she's gone. Uh-oh. Hopefully she'll be back. I don't know what happened. It says she's still there. Yeah, that's what... It it may be just like a timed out, like a timing thing. Isn't she amazing? Oh, yeah. She is. I did not expect all this. I'm like crying. Kids are like, why is mama crying? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, we'll see when she comes back. But, you know, it's so important what you said, Erica, about like, it is really sad. I think it's also about highlighting the good stories, too. Yeah. That will Mm -hmm. will help us. Yes. a Georgia boy started reading at six months old, now 12. He's in college. Diane, you there? Oh, no. I hope she comes back. 12-year-old Collab Anderson isn't a regular kid. He currently a sophomore in college with hopes of becoming an aerospace engineer. According to his parents, Collab has always been a fast learner. He began reading at six months old. Oh, there you are, Diane. Can I hear you? Yeah. Oh, thank God. Oh, thank God you're back. <laughs> I was missing you. Okay. I was saying it's important to highlight some good stories like uh, the uh, Georgia boy named Caleb. I think that's his name. I've been, I get names wrong, by the way. Um, and I've been called out on this show because I 
<laughs> mess up names. See, I try to act like a reporter. I am not. I'm a comedian. Okay. So I apologize. Like, I think the episode we have coming out this week is about breast cancer awareness. And I, I referred to one doctor and then the other one, I just kept calling her Kelly. <laughs> so she was like, she did not call me doctor, but I mess up. So I apologize. Caleb, I hope that is your name. So he's a fast learner. He began reading at six months old, started doing fractions at two, and passed the first grade when he was three. Wow. Caleb's father, Kobe Anderson, says it's important to be able to share his son's story, the story of a gifted black boy. As a teenager, I remember downplaying my intelligence, he says. Being a young black male, there are these negative stereotypes that are reinforced quite frequently, and so the attention is an opportunity to bring another story to light, one that we hope will inspire others to foster the gifts that their kids have. So I, I asked you that, uh, Diane, like what stories do the kids get that they respond to? And are they like, cause like we had a guest on, he does barbershop books where he, he wants kids to identify as readers. Alvin Irby started that and he puts books in the barbershops. And so, you know, how do you, how, how can you get your, these, your kids to read or do they, you know, and sometimes you do, you know, he was saying you could find other ways like, you know, reading a, a menu or reading a sign or reading the manual for football playing. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Rap. Ah, I love it. These words, they go into these songs. It's everything coming from Drake. Who else is out there? Snoop Dogg. Anybody. Kendrick Lamar, different people. Up there. They say it, you know. That's where it comes from. That reading comes from. They'll read stuff like that, especially on on um, the internet. You got songs where now they put the lyrics up, right? Oh yeah, yeah. They want to know what they're saying because they like the song. What we used to do is in the center, we would put up the lyrics to songs, and we all would sing. We all would go, you know, go through the lyrics, and they would find words that they didn't understand or something. So we'd all look them up. And here I was, here I was thinking the lyrics were for old people like me. I was. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Happens, the kids can't even understand what they say. Okay. I don't feel so bad anymore. There's a number of ways to get them to read. And ever since spoken word just took off, they have to read because they want to do spoken word. Ah, I love it. Okay. Yeah, they want to spit, you know. <laughs> yes. That's old school for us. Yeah. Spit. They want to do that. And they have to know how to read. <laughs> Spell their word in order to put in the right things down. Like Denzel. Denzel, 17 years old, he loves to write. And he loves to spit his words. That's what he said, spit his words. So he has to go on his phone and, okay, Google, what is that? Okay, Google, how do you spell that? So he's learning all the time. But to him, he's writing his stuff, right? So he's not worried about it. He's, he's not thinking about that he's learning. He's thinking about he's doing something he loves. I love it. This article we put in um, Lucille Clifton, who was a prolific poet and children's book author who, after being brought to national attention by the likes of Langston Hughes and Ishmael Reed in the late 1960s, won numerous awards. Clifton resided in Baltimore for most of her adult life, producing six books of poetry, a memoir, and serving as Maryland's poet 
Laureate from 1974 to 1985. She spent much of that time living, writing, and raising a family with activist husband Fred James Clifton in a blue and white house in the West Baltimore neighborhood. Now that home will become a haven for other creatives. As reported by the Lit Hub on October 16th, a $750,000 grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation has been bestowed upon the Clifton House, which will now house an artist and writer's workshop designed to honor the legacy of esteemed poet Lucille Clifton. So I just like stories like that because like you said, Diane, you would like to hear more stories of like of yours in other places like, you know, New York City, Baltimore, you know, it's, it is dope. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I think that's so cool. When I read that story and I hadn't seen that story until your producer sent it to me, somebody from your camp sent it. And I was like, wow, isn't that cool? She's getting honored for her writing, for her uh, expressing herself, because that's what kids want to do, right? Well, don't sue, <laughs> but yeah. kids mainly, they want to do that. Which is why their phones are everything. Their life is literally in those phones. Oh, yeah. Put everything in there. You know, I love it. I love that story. Well, you know, Diane, I have to say, like, I love you. I seriously do. I love what you do. I see you have so much joy and you look like you really enjoy it. And it's like, you know, it doesn't feel like work. I did when I was at University of Illinois, I did a program working with um, teen moms as part of my degree, my psychology, I worked with this woman, amazing woman, Beulah Latif. Now she was not like you, Diane. She was tough. You couldn't do the right thing <laughs> by these. She was on the side of the teenage mothers. You weren't going to, I was to her like probably like an entitled suburban kid from Chicago, you know? So she was always going to be hard about what else could you have done for this mother? What else could you have done? How are you looking at at her don't judge but she was she was hard on you about it so at times it 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 scared me because I was like I, I'm trying you have such like a like a, just a nice kind spirit what do you do for fun I mean it seems like this is fun it's tough fun but what do you do for fun I love fishing I will sit on a fishing bank until somebody just pulls me off I love to dance I actually used to be on soul train so I love to dance. What? Back when it was in Chicago? In Chicago. Or down there at wow. WCIU? With Clint Gent. And then Dr. Cornelius came in. He begged my mom for me to go to L.A. at 15 years old. My mother was like, no way. Uh-huh. <laughs> but my best friend went. We used to go to parties and dance, little quarter parties. And we go to dance party and we dance. And then uh, when Dr. Cornelius asked, he asked her mother, too. And her mother said, yeah. And I saw her all the time on Soul Train. Oh, man. I used to cry all the time. But I'm so glad my mom didn't let me go. <laughs> because I might not have been where I am now with helping young people. So, And that's the love. That's that's one of my big loves is helping young people. So I'm kind of glad you didn't. Fishing is so cool. My grandmother was, I think, is that a Chicago thing or... Where does that come from? I think that comes from the South, actually. Yeah, because my grandmother was a major. Um, because I love to fish. I just love to go sit on a bank. If I don't catch nothing, I love to just sit there with my pole and think I'm going to catch something. <laughs> wow. I would love to go crabbing with you because I grew up going crabbing. I grew up crabbing in, on the Jersey Where? Shore. Jersey Shore. Wow. Where are we going? <laughs> <laughs> the last time we went, we had all the kids out there and the crab traps and the 
setting them up and tying a little piece of chicken in the bottom and then teaching them how to let it, you know, it's real interesting to take kids fishing or crabbing, anything like that. Teach them about food and the cycle of life and how, how much we need to respect our food. Wow. Well, we're all comedians, Diane. So we're, uh, we're learning to pivot. I'm, I am curious. There was an article that they put in, or is it still here? They may have taken it out because I yelled at them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, they put it in. Okay. Because I was like, it's not relating to this well, incredible woman. Redo your topics. All right. Um, so it's okay to laugh again. Comedians rallied to offer indoor and outdoor shows with a pandemic twist. Now, this is in Chicago Reader. From big comedy clubs to do-it-yourself outdoor shows, the Chicago comedy scene is alive again and ready to take on whatever the pandemic throws next. Under Illinois Phase 4 reopening plan, outdoor gatherings with adequate social distancing, mask wearing, and surface disinfecting are allowed. And indoor venues can operate at 50% capacity with seats six feet apart. I wouldn't go... But also those that all serve food and drink must operate at 25%. These lifted restrictions have made way for open mics to start up again with creative and safe adjustments like shows being performed outside on stoops, backyards, and even on the bed of a pickup truck. Each of these shows strictly adheres to social distancing and safety precautions like availability of hand sanitizers, mic covers, and six feet between audience members. Indoor venues like the Laugh Factory and Zanies have also reopened, and it's clear that audiences want to be there and support live comedy. I don't know. So let me ask you guys how y'all feel about that. <laughs> you know, I have not done stand up or anything in a while, and I'm—I'll be going to Aruba to perform. Wow! Oh, with Ray Ellen? Yeah, with Ray, my my boo Ray Ellen, and I'm like, uh, I'm nervous about being in a you know enclosed space where I'm on a mic talking and people are hacking and laughing back and breathing. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very nervous about it. Because that's the casino inside, right? Yes. So I don't, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going and, you know, I need, I need the money, I need to work. But, you know, I'm the type, I quarantined from March till June. I did not leave my home for anything. Wow. I did not leave my house from March to June. You now just had I'm in all Jamaica. delivery? You just had all delivery? All, everything delivered. No one came in my house. If you delivered anything to me, you had to leave it on the front porch. And I'm a super auntie. I'm a TT. And I'm addicted to my brother's kids. I did not see them in person from March to June. I just was like, because I have, I'm a diabetic. I can't play. And then I left the U.S. I've been here since September in Jamaica because Jamaica is not playing any games with COVID. I don't know, y'all. Marina, have you been performing? This is my advice. And, you know, don't tell Ray I said this because the last time I even brought Ray's name up, I had to block him because he got so mad. I love Ray. I love Ray to death. But, you know, hey, my thing is right now, if you don't feel safe and comfortable, just say no to it. Uh, I was asked to do a gig in Montana where the numbers are spiking. Now, it was for January 8th. But I don't know. Common sense, again, tells me that's flu season. And Montana is a place is that's a red state. Right. Right. It's red, red, wherever red, red, red. red. No, no. Fire yeah, engine yeah. red. Yeah. 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 No, no. Any Trump supporters, any red, nothing. No, I'm not going inside because 
they don't seem to understand this is real. Mm -hmm. And I don't care. They, they talk about all of the things that they're doing and I get they're trying, but unless I'm actually there, I don't know. And if they're not, I I just, no, I, I wouldn't feel safe if it was a Hollywood like acting and a set where they're, everyone's getting COVID testing. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, I, I would feel at least better about taking that trip out. But for me, your health, Erica, is very important to me. Yeah. So I don't know what to do at this point. Everyone is telling me don't go. Cause I, if, just you know, cancel. They already said in New York city, they're recommending that you stay in state. You stay where you are. Because the holidays, they've already projected the next six weeks to be the darkest time. Their numbers are spiking. So here's the thing. Anyone who doesn't understand you canceling right now, that's on them. This is that time when canceling makes sense. Yeah, like what are they not getting? What are they not getting? Like we see the numbers every day where it's spike, where it's spiking. I mean, I went to LA in the beginning of September to help a family member out. And it, man... It took everything for me to get on that plane. I did not want to go. Like, I really did not want to go. But I was like, okay, this is family. And then when I came back, because California was spiking, I got phone calls for two weeks. Make sure you're quarantining. Make sure you're quarantining. Make sure you're quarantining. So, uh, you know, my husband's a diabetic. I get it. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, don't, you don't need that. In New York City, uh, here's a story. Just want to, you know, just just be careful because and Ray is a nice guy. He'll understand if you approach him and you say, hey, I just don't feel comfortable. I don't feel safe. He'll understand that. I'm, I'm pretty sure. So this is all you have to do is just be honest about it, you know, and don't wait until the last minute. Give him some time. December. He's got time. He's got time. Someone just I'm trying to set a couple up and someone's like, hey, when are you hooking up that date? Someone just texts me that. I'm like, I'm not even hooking myself up. Can you give me it? <laughs> so jealous of listening to Diane's stories about her husband are so funny because I'm like, I've never been married. <laughs> and Holly, you too. You have a great husband. You always have great stories about your husband. I'm so jealous. Thank you. I don't, nobody else would put up with me. I don't like I. that's one thing you were like. Girl, you've been married 22 years. I'm like, girl, nobody can deal with this. Nobody's <laughs> dealing with this. Oh, like you oh, just, he- I could deal with his level of crazy. He could deal with my level of crazy. If you can find that match, that's what it really is. No one else is putting up with that crazy. They're not. Let me tell you guys, <laughs> my husband and I met two weeks and we went to City Hall and got married. What? What? I met him and he came to Chicago from Mississippi looking for a wife. So I met him at a juke joint with a stripper sitting in his lap. And he was cute and I had had a beer because I couldn't stand the guy that I was sitting with. So I winked my eye at him and he got rid of the stripper. And then I I didn't hear from him for four days after I gave him my number because his niece had passed and he had went back to Mississippi. But I just thought he wasn't interested. Anyway, he went to his niece's funeral. He came back. And he called me at 2.30 in the morning and I hung up on him because I thought he didn't want me. You know, he didn't want me. He ended up over, over to my aunt's house. I, I loved his lips, so I always kissed on his lips. And he, <laughs> so it was getting hot and heavy after two weeks. And I'm like, wait a minute. This ain't going to happen. You want to get married or what? And he like, well, might as well. So we got up and went to City Hall the next day. That was 36 years ago. 
Wow, that's amazing. Wow. That is amazing. So, my, so the mistake I've been making, Diane, is that I've been dating them for four years. And that's where, and then I end up breaking up and starting over. I should just be like, look, where's this going? <laughs> yeah, because you find that all their fault. Yeah, I say you give somebody four seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall before I do a seating chart. I'm sorry. Well, Diane did four. two weeks. You did two weeks. Yeah. First of all, I had been married. I was married at 16, pregnant at 16, to my first husband, who was crazy. He was off his rocker. And I had seven kids when I met my second husband. Wow. And when we met, and he was just, he was so good looking to me. I'm telling you, this man was like, oh, God. And I, he, he turned me on. But I, I had kids. I had four girls. I was not going to lay up with him. I just wasn't going to do it. So I just looked him in his eyes. You want to get married or what? And might as well. That was it. Seven kids. Seven. Now, all of the kids, they must, they help out, right? Or do they get, they're like, mommy, we need you. We need mommy time. First of all, there's a myth out there that you, you be a parent to the 18 years old and everything goes away. No, that's not true. Actually, it starts all over again. (laughs) <laughs> Let me tell everybody that. Yes. But I've got four of my kids who don't like what I do because they think it's too dangerous. And I got four who support what I do. And they're, they're right. Aisha's right there with me. She's she's uh, one of my staunchest supporters among my kids. It's a balance. <laughs> Isn't that funny, though, when there's like a lot of kids involved? Because there's six kids in my family and there's always like factions. Like this group is over here. This group there, they're, they're eight kids all on one page. That's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. No, they are all totally different. And mm. then I'll have like five here this day, and then I'll have four, and then I'll have seven. But when all eight of them get together, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. Erica is quiet. She's like probably canceling her. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm over here about to like here. Dear to whom it may concern, Ray Ellen. Uh, oh, don't, don't say his Marina name. Right? Told he's gonna, me he's to, gonna curse me out. He's already been mad at me. He so is. He's gonna, he's gonna call. He's gonna call. He gets I'm so actually, mad at me. I love you, Ray. Let, let me say this: it's a wonderful gig. Normally, I had a great time. It's fun to be in Aruba. He takes care of you really well. He set, doesn't he? He sets you up really nice. Yeah, everyone is saying it's a wonderful gig, but then my family is like, "You don't." Okay. I came here to Jamaica because COVID was low and I've been so scared in the U.S. So when I tell you I had a full hazmat suit on on that plane and (laughs) I was spraying every motherfucker on that plane. Everybody that came towards me, I sprayed them with something. I wiped down the the air vent and the the air thing. So funny. And then I had the whole row to myself. I mean, and then here in Jamaica, first of all, there's a curfew every night. You have to be back in your house by 8 p.m. You must wear a mask everywhere you go. Uh, They sanitize your hands everywhere you go. Everyone is wearing their mask. So they're not playing here. And then I look on the news and see in Chicago, the numbers are spiking. So I don't even really want to go back. Um, But y'all, just so y'all know, since I've been here in Jamaica, I'm talking low because he's outside the door. I got a little boo thing here. You always have a, you know what? Hey, baby, Stella got her groove back and then some. (laughs) Listen, this boy, (laughs) wow. Uh, Erica's Um, always got someone, man. And he's 20 years younger than me, so this has been amazing. 
Listen, Ooh, I get woken up every morning. Yes, and he just made some brown chicken while y'all been. He's been making this brown chicken and feeding me, but then we go work out because he's trying to help me lose weight too. It's just been amazing. Anyway, all I'm saying is I'd rather be I here. I know. I'm so jealous. Honey. And I saw that you had soursop for the first time, which yes. I have to say, like, you know, I was. I, you know, last year I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. I'm, I'm good. I'm surviving. I'm, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I just had my mammo in. Uh, oh, and I have to say this again, make sure ladies, you get your mammograms, even during this time, mm-hmm. do what you have to do, be safe, but do not wait. Yeah. I just got mine. Because, good. Cause there's a lot of backup. And so you don't want to be that person that goes in and ends up waiting too late and becoming like stage four. Right. So please, the hospitals are open now and you they are doing the hospitals actually are doing the most to be safe. So make your appointment. But soursop is one of those uh, fruits that is cancer killing. Yes. And they swear by it. I mean, I don't know for a fact. I, I It tastes delicious. Tell us about your first experience with soursop and then we'll get out. Yeah, y'all, soursop. My friend Hadia, Hadia Robinson, she oh. was here in Jamaica. Yeah, me and Hadia were here together trying to just escape from the US. And um, she fell in love with soursop and then she had me try it. And baby, first of all, you feel sexy eating it. And I made a video of me not realizing so many men would be in my DM, like, yo, can you what what that mouth do kind of thing because of eating the soursop. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Diane. I know you didn't expect to come on this nasty show. Diane doesn't um, judge. She's right. heard Don't so judge much. Me, Diane. So then I decided, y'all, I'm going to do an OnlyFans page where all I do is eat fruit and then charge people to watch me eat fruit. In the same time, I'll be getting healthy and I can be nasty with it a little bit, you know, give them their little 1999 worth of seeing, you know, food porn, literally. And, um, yeah. So, but yeah, the soursop is amazing. Also here, I mean, they've been fighting COVID. Like they haven't had many deaths here from infections because they're doing the ginger root. They're eating the soursop. They're doing the bush teas. There's a tea here. There's a bush called, um, dang, I can't think of it. And they swear it cures cancer and people drink this tea and they don't have any problems. Well, so, it's also because they don't have the sky in office and they don't have yeah. what you mentioned before is everything that's set up in America was meant to be this way. And so the disparity of COVID deaths has also been set up because we're living in areas where it just is not meant for people to live in yeah. in the way that they are living in. In Jamaica, they're not dealing with what we're dealing with in America. No. And they're very strict here. Like last weekend was a holiday weekend. Curfew was 3 p.m. Just to make sure nobody here partied or did anything crazy. And you have to be in your house for curfew. And the people here just abide by the rules. They will kick you out if you don't have a mask on and you don't sanitize your hands. They don't care where you are. I wish the U.S. was doing more of that. But that's why it makes me afraid to I don't know what Aruba is like. I need to look it up and see. But I, I'm just like, it's probably if I'm coming back to the U.S., my plan was to come back and just quarantine and social distance from everybody for the next couple months. Yeah. Well, be careful. I do want to ask you, ladies, uh, this before we get out. And I mean that. Be careful, Erica. I am. You know, because I heard the way I said that sometimes I when I listen to the episode back, I'm like, God, that was such a cold. Be careful. No, 
It was full of love. <laughs> but I really mean that. Please be careful. Um, take that soursop with you. I get it mailed to me from Fruits and Roots or Roots Ooh, and Fruits. You do Fruits and Roots? I want to yeah. do that for my um, OnlyFans page. Yeah, 20% off, I think, right now for their soursop. And it's, it's soursop, for those of you listening that don't know what it tastes like, it tastes like a Jolly Ranch apple candy without all the the chemical stuff of candy. Yep. It's delicious. It's delicious. But I do want to ask you all this. I'm going to put two things out. One, did you vote yet? I'm voting tomorrow. My husband and I are voting tomorrow together. Yeah, I sent my ballot back. We voted after this interview. After this interview? Oh, my God. Okay, because you're going to be in the line, right? Is Are there long lines in Chicago? Not where we're going, no. Oh, Good. New York is a mess. Oh, yeah, the it? line in my neighborhood is about three hours long yesterday. Oh, no. We, we, I went by there yesterday. It's not, uh, well, I guess because they got so many clothes. Okay. And here's another thing I put out there to you all. When Trump said he did more for Black people since Abraham Lincoln. Baby. <laughs> I, was, I was like, it felt like we had reverted back to 1865. Like, I was just like, this is, I was like, Massa has lost his mind. You know, it just, you know, I was like, something's wrong here. That's all I can really say. Something is wrong, man. I don't think Trump is going to win. I don't think he is going to win. I think Biden and Kamala are going to win. You know how old school say about a person they think is crazy, the elevator don't stop on every floor. Mm -hmm. Trump <laughs> yes. has no elevator. No elevator at all. It's just, it's just nothing's there. People just gotta get, 25th Amendment, where are you? Because the man has, he's never has had any, if you look at old footage, you knew that he was crazy. Well, that's the thing. When he that statement about I've done more for black people, it's like the most illogical thing. Like when he says, I'm the least racist person, because the illogic, the illogic of it is, if I've done more for black people, so he knows what everybody else has done, and then he knows that he has done more, or he knows how racist everybody is, and he knows he's the least. It's like, you know what he always says, by the likes of nobody's ever seen. Right. The biggest, the biggest, everything is in P.T. Barnum Bailey. I've done more for black people. And then when you find out what uh, what the Obama administration did, for a, for people who were in jail, and you look at what he did, it's really tiny, like it's teeny tiny. Yeah, thank you for that, because I I needed I need I because I've even had surprisingly some black people come at me with this crazy idea that they think he's done more, and I was like, they don't read, I, they don't read, because if they no, dug they into that, if they dug into a few links, they would know. Yes, the talking point. There's the talking points exactly from Fox News that a lot of people who don't read are using. That is just is driving me crazy. But the only thing he's done is keep Fashion Fair Foundation in business because that has to be Tawny number thirty two <laughs> that he's wearing. So yeah, thank you for saving Fashion Fair, Trump crazy ass. When you said Fashion Fair, I just saw the back of the old Ebony magazine. It needs to be really bad. Yes. When it was like a blanket, when you're a little kid, you'd be laying. Ebony would just go over you like a blanket. <laughs> yes. I miss that big old Ebony magazine. Oh, yes. Fashion fan. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a good place to come to a close. I want to thank you, Diane. What? Where can our listeners, they find you? And they can find us on kidsofftheblock.us. Friends like us 
means that we're supported, loved, and cared for. That's it for me. Thank you so much. <sighs> Holly? Bacon finds me on Instagram, Holly Harper 5, or Twitter, Holly Harper 5, or AmericanCandyNYC.com. And I would say with friends like us, you know you're not crazy. And do you want to tell them about the project we're doing this Thursday real fast? Or? Yes, I'm a part of Stand Up Girls. They're an organization that brings stand-up comedy into uh, city high schools um, around New York and teaches them how to do stand-up comedy. And it culminates with them doing uh, like a five-minute set, a show somewhere. And um, there is a movie called All Joking Aside. It has nothing to do with us, but we're helping them promote it. It's a movie about a Black uh, girl becoming a stand-up comedian. And so we're profiling some comedians, real comedians like Marina, uh, to let them to show people like, yes, black women do become comedians. This is not just a movie, it's a real thing. Wow. Woo! I've been wanting to do something like that in Chicago. I'm glad to know that exists. Oh, that'd be wonderful in Chicago. See if they could do a Chicago version of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Erica, where can our listeners find you and what's going on? I am Erica. You can find me on Instagram at Miss underscore Poundcakes. That is my stripper name. Also, um, (laughs) uh, you can find me in Jamaica right now. Um, But yeah, what else? And with friends like us, you will go far. Yes. And Marina Franklin and I just I'm so happy with this episode. I'm just so happy, Diane, that we could get you. And I'm so happy that I got to see you, Holly, because I've not seen you. You send me nice messages all the time. It just makes me feel makes me feel good. Thank you, Holly. I, I th- thank you so much. I feel like I see you because I watch you on TikTok. And I'm always like, oh, I saw Marina. I'm new at the thing, but, but it's like, well, and Erica, girl, you know, I love you. We did the show with you and Yamanika. That was so much fun. I wish you would do another one. You know, please continue to listen to us. We have a new t-shirts, face masks uh, available with the logo on it, the new logo. So you can purchase them. I am now postal service in my home. I can, (laughs) it's crazy. I do not know the postal system. I had to mail a letter. I had to mail masks and t-shirts and weigh it. I was like, I don't know what ounces are. So, (laughs) but but it's happening. I'm doing it. And um, I just appreciate this episode today. It's going to reach a lot of people in a really great way. So with friends like us, you can have the right guests and the right friends to make the world a better place. Check Check us out. out. Oh my God, you guys, this was, thank you, Diane. Just like gold, it's so so pure, it purifies my mind and lets my spirit soar.